Now, if you've been tracking with us in Paul's letter to the Romans, which has been called the greatest letter ever written, you may be getting to the point at this point in the Scripture where you're thinking, why does Paul keep repeating the same thing over and over again? We get to the point where you want to tell Paul, you've already said that, Paul, you're repeating yourself, we get it. And, and all of us who tend to repeat ourselves, we say, well, that's a sign of old age or that's a sign of, of something else. And we wonder, Paul, what are you doing here? Why does Paul keep hammering the truth that God's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone? How many times does he need to say it? He says it in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He hits it again in verse 26 of the third chapter so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To be the justifier means to declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. He hammers it again in verse 28 of chapter 3, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He keeps going in chapter 4, verse 3, where he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And in case we missed it, he repeats it in verse 4 of chapter 5. But the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to righteousness. And if we still don't get it, he comes at it again in verse 6 of chapter 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. No, we're not there yet. He says it again in verse 8 of the fourth chapter. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account or does not credit to him. So why does Paul keep hammering on this truth that God's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone? It's because the Bible shows in the last 2,000 years of Christian history have shown how deeply embedded in the fallen heart is the idea that we can do something to commend ourselves before God. The last two millennia of human history proved Paul to be right. All religions, including the major ones that go under the label of Christian, are works-oriented. Works-oriented. All the religious cults are works-oriented. The cults, for example, teach that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross only opens the door for salvation. Now, you have to obtain it yourself by doing certain things, certain good deeds, and by keeping their rules. Billions of people in this world today believe what the vast majority of people believe, that they are saved by keeping religious rituals and doing good deeds. And so in verses 9 through 15, that we look at Romans chapter 4 today, Paul keeps hammering the truth because he's anticipating an objection that's going to be coming from religious Jews of the time who'll still be thinking, yes, God credits righteousness by faith, but it's only for the circumcised who believe, not for the uncircumcised Gentiles. In fact, that was the controversy that sparked what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You might remember in your study of the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Antioch and Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and it was really the first revival after Pentecost in Christian history was going on in, in Antioch. And then these Jews, Jewish Christians, started showing up. We call them Judaizers today. And they begin to teach, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And some of the Pharisees who were part of the church in Jerusalem took it a step further at the council and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentile converts and direct them to observe the law of Moses. So in order to be saved, you got to be circumcised, then you got to keep the whole law of Moses. And we know from the Old Testament, nobody was ever able to do that. But uh, before we start thinking that this kind of thinking doesn't pertain to us today, the same kind of reason is often applied to baptism. That God credits righteousness by faith, but it's only for those who are, are baptized. Or God credits righteousness by faith, but it's only for those who perform certain rituals and ceremonies. And yes, Virginia, there are those who teach that in order to be baptized, or in order to be saved, you have to be baptized in their local church. That's the only way you can be saved at all. Or you have to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And I could go on and on why Paul is hammering the truth here and why it's a necessary, even essential for us today to hammer the same truth. And Paul's example of the truth is Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham is the pattern. He's the example. He's the prototype of justification, and the justification is by faith, through faith, on the principle of grace. And so using Abraham as the example, Paul is going to show us here or expound two simple but profound truths. First of all, that the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping religious rituals. The blessing of salvation does not come through keeping religious rituals, but the blessing of salvation comes through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. And the second truth is this, the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping the law, keeping the Old Testament law. The blessing of salvation does not come through keeping rituals, nor through keeping the law, but it comes through God crediting righteousness to us through, through faith alone. So please turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 9, as we start to work through this. The ninth verse of Romans chapter 4, 1384. And the ninth verse begins with, is this blessing? Is this blessing? What blessing? What is Paul talking about here? So let's go back to verse 6, where David the psalmist is quoted. One of David's psalms is quoted. And we see here what the blessings are. Verse 6 says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing, the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from work. Now David in the psalm is about to recount the blessings of salvation. These are the blessings on the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. We call, we call them beatitudes. These, these are beatitudes. These are blessings. Verse 7, blessing number 1. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. What a blessing. That's blessing number 1. Blessing number 2, still in verse 7, and whose sins have been covered. And blessing number 3, verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or credit to his account. These are the blessings that Paul is referring to here. Now we can go back to verse 9 because Paul asks a question. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or just the circumcised, we could say, or on the uncircumcised also? Are these blessings the forgiveness of lawless deeds, the forgiveness of sins, of the Lord not crediting sin to my account, are they just for the circumcised or are they from the uncircumcised 
also. And then Paul answers his own question. Paul lifts up the example of Abraham and quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 again in the last part of verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, quoting Genesis, faith was credited to Abraham. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And so lifting up Abraham as the example, Paul is going to show that God credits righteousness to the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. It's totally apart from works or worthiness. And he says, God credits unrighteousness to who? The ungodly. Not to the meritorious, not to the good, not to those who deserve it. And we can go back up to verse 5 for a moment in the middle of the verse to see to whom God credits righteousness. See that in the middle of verse 5? Who believes in Him who justifies the who? The ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. It's, it's the one who believes in Him. It's the ungodly. So who are the ungodly? The ungodly are the ones, Paul says here, they, they transgress the law. They perform lawless deeds. That makes them ungodly. Verse 9 also shows us that the ungodly are the ones who sin are in need of forgiveness. So what kind of person now would you think of if I said, well, that person's an ungodly person? You know, think in your mind for a minute. Now I'm going to give you a couple of examples of ungodly that you probably didn't even think of because Paul gives us two in this passage. Who are the two people who are ungodly through whom faith was credited them to righteousness? The first was Abraham, the father of faith. Ungodly. And the second is who? King David, the writer of the psalm. The man who is after God's own heart. Both of these men, like us, were ungodly sinners in need of God's grace. In need of the righteousness of God credited to their account by faith. And then now, once again, Paul turns the example of Abraham because Paul's anticipating a bunch of questions here. And the question is, when was faith credited to Abraham as righteousness and how was it done? In verse 10 of Romans chapter 4, we get the answer to those questions. Verse 10, he says, how then was it credited? How did Abraham get it? <laughs> how on account of his faith was it credited to him as righteousness? Because Jews, good Jews of this day, they would be asking these questions. And he says, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then he says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, the Jews of Paul's day viewed Gentiles as ungodly people, but they viewed themselves as godly people. Circumcision was the main religious ritual that distinguished them as Jews. And though everybody else, they called Gentile dogs. Gentile dogs. Now, you might remember when Abraham was 99 years old, God commanded him to circumcise himself and all the males of his household. And God extended the command for all Jewish boys throughout all generations they be circumcised on the eighth day. It was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. So let's go back and look at that in Genesis chapter 17. 17th chapter of Genesis. 
at the first verse, page 17, Genesis chapter 17 begins on page 17 in the Bible. That's always kind of interesting. <laughs> you might remember that in Abraham's life, he was given certain covenantal promises. God made the covenant with Abraham, and every time God renewed and ratified that covenant, he gave more promises. And the announcement of those promises of God was first made in Genesis chapter 12. And then it was ratified in Genesis chapter 15. And now in Genesis chapter 17, God gives what might be called the inauguration of the actual working out of the covenant by the covenantal sign of circumcision. Here is where the covenantal sign of circumcision comes in. And we read it in the first verse of Genesis chapter 17. Now when Abram, notice he's still called Abram at this time. This is where God changed his name to Abraham. When he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Lord God Almighty. I was looking at our banners. I didn't know if we had one. Anybody know what the Hebrew is for God Almighty there? Lord God Almighty? El Shaddai. El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. This was 14 years after the ratification of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15, when faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham, it says, is 99 years old. He's beyond the age of giving birth to a child. Romans chapter 4, Paul says, his body is as good as dead. And this is 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, the one, the child who was born according to the working of the flesh through Hagar. Did Abraham still, Abram still operate in the flesh? All kinds of times during that time. He operated in the flesh, and quite frankly, Abraham's ungodliness was made known a lot in those years, but God justifies whom? The ungodly. God credits righteousness apart from works. So when does circumcision enter the picture here? Let's think about Genesis again and work up to it. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called of God when he was 75 years old. Chapter 12. When he was 85 in Genesis chapter 15, he's given the promise of a son and the covenant is ratified. And that's where it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then 14 years later in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham is 99 years old, God ratifies the covenant once again. And part of that ratification now includes the right of circumcision. So look down at verse 8 of Genesis chapter 17. God says, I will give to you and to your ascendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You see, those who were saying that you have to be circumcised to be saved or to be credited as righteousness, read their Bible backwards. Now, none of us have ever fallen into that trap, have we? <laughs> I'm getting the cart before the horse. They read it as Genesis chapter 17, then 15, 
and then 12. We have to read it in the right order. It's chapter 12, 15, and then 17. Apart from works, apart from circumcision, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 14 years before circumcision even entered the picture. The righteousness of God was credited to Abraham by faith. In other words, circumcision had nothing to do with his righteousness, nothing to do with his faith, nothing to do with his salvation. So the question is, what was the purpose? What was, what was the deal with that? So this brings us back to Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, because this is the next question that, that Paul anticipates. What is circumcision for if it's not for obtaining righteousness and not for obtaining salvation? Why was circumcision part of the agreement, the covenant with God, if it had nothing to do with righteousness? And we see this in verse 11 of Romans chapter 4, the 11th verse. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. There's, there's two key words here that, that tell us what's going on here and what the purpose of circumcision was. Paul refers to circumcision as both a sign and a seal. He received the sign of circumcision and the seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. And this, it says that while Abraham was still uncircumcised, he was the father of all who believe without being circumcised. The righteousness might be credited to them. Now, what is a sign? A sign is not the real thing, but it points to the real thing. There's a sign out on the highway that says M at 16 miles. It may say 15 miles, but it's out there on Highway 16. Now, the sign is not the actual city, but it points you to it. A sign points to the reality, but it's not the reality. Whenever we have relatives coming to Emmett for the first time, they see that sign over on I-84, and it says Eagle Emmett. And they take the, the exit and go, okay, where's, where's Emmett? <laughs> it's a bad sign because it doesn't tell you. You've got to drive through Eagle and you've got to do this and you've got to go that and the other thing and, and you finally get there. But the, the sign just points you to the place that you want to go. But it's not the reality. You'll remember that while the angels or while the shepherds were out watching their flocks by night, the angels came and said to the shepherds, what? This shall be a sign unto you you'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. We would say, this is how the baby's going to be labeled. <laughs> this is the sign. The baby will wrapped in swaddling claws, he'll be lying in a manger. But the labeling only points to the reality. The reality is the baby, the Lord Jesus. You know, you go to the store, you see a cereal box, and it has a sign on it, prize inside. And you go, ah, I just got to have that box, <laughs> Right? Why do you have to have the box? Because you don't want the box. You get it home and you pour out all the cereal in a big bowl so you can grab the sign in and then you try to get the cereal back into the box, which is an almost impossible thing. And you hope your mother doesn't find you before you get it back in the box. Or if your mother's not around, you just reach down in the box until you find the, the, the thing. You know? 
The reality is not the sign, it's not the label. The reality is what's inside the box. Same way with circumcision. Circumcision was a physical sign in every Jewish man's flesh that pointed to the fact that he belonged to God. He was in covenant with God and he was in covenant with God's people. He was separated to God through the shedding of blood. And circumcision was just a sign of the reality. Likewise, as Christians, baptism is a sign. It's a sign of what? That your sins have been washed away through faith in Jesus Christ. It pictures the truth that you have identified completely immersed with Christ in His death, burial, and you identify with Christ in His resurrection as you come out of the waters. We look at that, that symbol, that sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the new covenant showing that you are a partaker of, in Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. The sign is not the reality. The sign points to the reality. The reality is God's promise to forgive all your sins and impute the righteousness of Christ to your account by faith alone. The ritual of circumcision or baptism, the Lord's Supper is a sign of the reality, but if you don't have the reality, the ritual is worthless. If you don't have the reality, the ritual is worthless. So you can see that this circumcision rite was a sign and it was also an indication or we could use the word revelation of the spiritual character of those upon whom the obligation had been laid. You know, it's the same way today with baptism. Baptism was never intended to be the means of salvation, even though people make it that way. But it's a revelation of the condition of the heart of the individual. If a person has truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism is the sign and even the seal of the righteousness that they have by faith. The person who believes in Christ and who has trusted in Him for their salvation will see baptism carried out in their own life as a testimony of what has happened to them inside. As Christ has saved them and the Holy Spirit has come to live inside them. It's what's happening in their hearts and in their lives. And because they are saved, they will obey God in baptism and it becomes the mark of the reality that's on the inside. And furthermore, if a person has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ supposedly or made a profession, but despises the rite of baptism, so I don't need to get baptized and I don't want to do that and that's not necessary, then there's, there's no indication outwardly that that person has truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament, baptism is very significant is a revelation ideally of the condition of the human heart. It does not save, but it's a product in obedience that flows from a saved life. You might be wondering, okay, we're Grace Baptist Church. Where is our baptistry? We have one underneath the stairs. Some of you have seen it. <laughs> and we pull that out. It's a portable baptistry. And if anybody through the, the leading of the Holy Spirit says, I've, I've received Christ and I need to follow in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, let me know. We'll get together and then we'll... I don't know if you fire up the baptistry because it's water, but that's basically <laughs> what we'll do. And so Paul also refers to circumcision as a seal. We saw what it means. It's a sign of, of the inward reality. It's also a seal. A seal of the righteousness of God by faith. Now what is a seal? Not one that... Not that kind of seal. A seal authenticates or attests to the reality of something. 
Now we go to we went to a notary a couple of weeks ago, and the notary put his seal on the documents that we were signing. And so the, the notary's seal, after he checked our driver's license, made sure we were who we said we were, and made sure that we were the same people that there was a line on there to sign, and my name was under it, and Jan's name was under the other one, made sure that the document referred to us, and we were those people, and all those kind of things. And uh, after he checked all those things and authenticated all the credentials and the documents and all those things, then he put his notary seal on that, and he authenticated it. A seal authenticates the reality, but like a sign, it's not the reality. You go to the store and you see a box with a good housekeeping seal of approval on it. Do they still do that? I don't know if I've noticed one <laughs> recently. The good housekeeping seal of approval on it. You expect, therefore, that what is in the box will be of a certain certifiable quality and it's the real thing. The outward work of circumcision attested to the reality of Abraham's previous faith. The faith that he already had that justified him and attested to him that he was in covenant with God. And so it was the mark and the seal that Abraham was justified by faith and he was in covenant with God. But it was the faith that justified him. It was not the seal. It was not the act of circumcision. So in verse 12 of Romans chapter 4, Paul applies this to the Jews. And then he narrows it by saying that it does not apply to all Jews, but only to those who also follow in the steps of faith of Abraham. Later, Paul's going to say in Romans that not all Jews are true Jews. Not all of Israel is true Israel, because true Israel are only those who have accepted by faith uh, Jesus Christ. But here Paul is saying that whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, the key thing is to believe God's promise to justify the ungodly. The rituals follow as signs and seals, but the reality is through faith alone. And the rituals and the works mean nothing apart from God crediting righteousness by faith. So first of all, Paul shows us that the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping religious rituals, whether it be circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper. But the blessing of salvation comes through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. And secondly, Paul shows us that the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping the law. It doesn't through come through keeping rituals and those kind of things, nor does it come through keeping the law. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world are not through the law, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. In other words, if you seek to be justified by keeping the law, you make faith void and you nullify the promises of God. There's no in-between. There's not faith plus works, as so many claim there is, because any amount of works, Paul says here, makes faith null and void. It does not save. Now, the Apostle Paul argues that it's a simple historic fact. We say if you read your Bible correctly, you read it historically, chronologically, it's pretty simple. And the same thing they're saying here. 
that justification came to Abraham not through the law. It couldn't have come through the law. Why? Just think about this for a moment. The law had not been given when Abraham was justified by faith. It was literally hundreds of years later before the law was given. The righteousness had already come to Abraham long before the law. It's just if I were to say to you something like, as evident as, George Washington did not live under the laws of the state of Idaho. Right, well, of course, George Washington didn't live under the laws of Idaho. There weren't any laws in Idaho when George Washington was living. So consequently, Washington didn't live under the laws of Idaho. And so likewise, Abraham was not justified through the works of the law. Why? Because the law had not yet been given. That's the first thing Paul says. It's clear from history. But he also says the law was never intended to save. That was never the purpose of the law to save. Listen to what he says about the law again in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promises is nullified. The principle of receiving a gift by faith is the opposite of receiving a reward that you work for, right? If I give you a gift and I say, or if you give me a gift, I'll turn that around. If you give me a gift and I say to you, well, let me pay you back for that by working for it. That's no longer a gift. I've turned the gift into something that I owe you or you'll end up owing me or something like that. God promises to justify who? The ungodly person who does not deserve it, but who receives it freely by His grace. If you mix human works with God's grace, then grace is what? It's no longer grace. I used to like to do that with youth groups. I would take a a fishbowl full of clear water and say, this is, this is grace and it's perfectly clear and, and, it, and it's beautiful. Then I'd take some blue food coloring. Now, so I'm just going to put one drop in there. Put one little drop and then it's kind of a light blue. And I say, is that still perfectly clear with no color? And they go, no, just take one drop of works and you drop it into that, that water. It's no longer grace. The promise of salvation as a free gift received by faith, he says, has been nullified and turned into a debt for payment of services rendered. And we can never pay the debt. And then verse 15 of Romans chapter 4 contains a sobering truth. If you seek to be justified by keeping the law rather than gaining the blessing of salvation, you actually incur God's wrath. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath but where there is no law, there's also no violation. Okay, what does he mean by that? <laughs> there's no law, there's no violation. Let me see if I can illustrate that. Say around 1905, going back a little over a century in Emmett, what if I'd gotten into one of those mechanical contrivance with four wheels and I got into the, the seat of that horseless carriage and I revved it up a little bit and I raced down Main Street and Emmett at 100 miles an hour. There wouldn't have been any law in the state of Idaho or in the city of Emmett that would have punished me, right? There's no law against it. In fact, if I drove down the street 100 miles an hour, everybody would probably run for cover in 1905 
And they'd wonder what that is. I might even have been accused of witchcraft or some strange thing. But there were no laws against speeding 100 miles an hour. But was it the right thing to do? Was it, wrong, was it right or wrong to scare all those people and go at such a speed that's so dangerous? It would be folly and dangerous. It would be foolish. It would be sin in that sense. But as far as the law is concerned, it's a non-transgression. It's not a transgression of the law because the law against it had not been written. And so what Paul is saying here, and he says it in other places as we put it all together, there was sin before the Mosaic law, before God gave the law of Moses, gave the law to Moses. There was sin. There was sin, but it was not transgression because the law had not been written. But when the law was written, it turned sin into transgression. It turned sin into disobedience of the law. And in turning sin into transgression, he says it worked wrath. It invokes the wrath of the law. The wrath of the law comes down on the transgressor. You know, I think we have a very similar thing today in our world because uh, it's against the law in Idaho to text while you drive. We know people get killed. We know there's accidents. We know it's a stupid thing to do and we're scared to death if we're sitting in the passenger seat while somebody else is texting, not paying attention, swerving this way and those kind of things. There's no law against it. But as soon as Idaho, and they should, pass a law against texting while driving then it's going to be against the law and it's going to bring the, trans, the, the wrath of the law against the transgressor. Now, as many of you know, over one half the roads in Germany, especially on the Autobahn, there's no speed limit. No speed limit in most of Germany. The only place they have speed limits really is uh, when you come to a town or to a dangerous place in the road. You can race down the highway at, on the Autobahn 120, 150 miles an hour if you have a car that'll do that. And the policemen just look at you and watch you go by and say, there you go, neighbor, you're good. There's no law against going as fast as you want to go. It's folly, and a lot of drivers are guilty of folly. Folly. They're, they're going 120, 130, 140 miles an hour. There's no law against speeding on that road. But there's also no law that says slowing down is against the law. But if you're stuck in the passing lane going about 55 miles an hour, you're a danger to everybody on the road. So that's folly as well, even though it's not a law. And so the, consequently, there is no transgression, just folly. But where there is the law, and the law has been transgressed, the policemen just don't smile at you and watch you go by. The law works wrath. I've told this story to a few of you before, but uh, when I was doing a lot of work for the city, doing the green audits and those kind of things and evaluating all the buildings of the city, I went down to the city to pick up my check uh, for, for doing that work. And as I was leaving, leaving the city, I got out on Main Street and I was listening on the radio, not paying attention to anything else because they just said that General Billy McChrystal had just been fired. Some of you might remember that. So I'm thinking about that and all the consequences and of that. And I hear sirens, you know, someplace. And I look back, look in my mirror, can't see any sirens. So I keep going down Main Street. And then I get to, to Moffitt where I turn. And I hear sirens as I'm turning again. I look both ways and don't see any, any, uh, any lights or anything, and then I turn into the alley so I can pull into our carport off the alley, and just as I'm turning into the carport, I see all these lights coming down the alley 
behind me. And uh, so I pull into the carport. They screech right behind me. And, of course, Jan has company in the house. And they're all looking out the window going, what did the pastor do? <laughs> I've incurred the wrath of the, the law because I was going 35 miles an hour in the 20-mile-an-hour zone just past uh, City Hall there. I had transgressed the law. I was a lawbreaker, and I incurred the wrath of the law. And the first question they asked me was, were you trying to get away from us? And I go, no, no, not at all. Tried to explain. And then he said, why are you so nervous? <laughs> well, you're making me nervous. <laughs> you know, and all our good friends are in the house going, what's going on with the pastor? <laughs> but, uh, you know. And then two weeks later, as I took my position on the, the city zoning commission, I had to raise my hand and swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States and all the laws of the United States of America, the state of Idaho, and the city of Emmett, and look the mayor in the eye and say, I do, but I didn't. <laughs> but I, I'm certainly going to try to do that now. But where there is the law, the law has been transgressed. And that is disobedience. And the law of God brings down the wrath of God to those who break the law. It's a disobedience punishable by the law of God. And that takes us back in closing here Clear back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The 18th verse, because this verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 began this whole section that, that we are still in, that all our sinners, Jews, Gentiles, everybody have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and now Paul is starting to talk about how we can, can we redeem that. And, and uh, he says in verse 1, chapter 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, that's why we have to be justified by faith. Because every one of us are a lawbreaker, right? How many times already today <laughs> have we transgressed the law or we, have, we, have we sinned? In the flesh, to one extent or another, we're still lawbreakers. We're, we're transgressors of the law. No amount of keeping the law is going to make up for it. I didn't, I didn't tell the nice policeman. I said, well, I've obeyed the speed limit every time this week until now. <laughs> that doesn't count for, for nothing. And uh, the, the police officer that was with the guy who was driving, the police officer who was driving, uh, she was a woman police officer. She said, oh, Slayball, isn't your mother that wonderful teacher who taught third grade for all those years? Did that help me at all? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I was still fined, not for resisting arrest. They did talk about that. <laughs> but I was still fined for failure to yield. And I had to pay a big penalty down at the, the courthouse. Big fine for failure to yield. I only broke it once that time. Without righteousness being credited to our account through faith in Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and transgressions, without that, we face the full weight of the wrath of God that is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We need Jesus. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father,
we give you thanks for doing what none of us could do. Not sin. None of us can not sin. All of us are guilty as lawbreakers. But in while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love for us. Jesus died on the cross for each one of us, Lord, who would believe and then by faith we would receive Him and the credit at that point, our account is righteousness. Righteous. Righteous. Father, we thank You that one day that in Christ we will stand before You and you will look at us and you will say, righteous. Righteous. We do give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.